the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The views and opinions expressed in the program are not necessarily those of this radio station or its sponsors and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. You should always consult the appropriate advisor before making any financial decision. All rights reserved. Now, AM 1220 KNEW presents... New Focus on Wealth with Certified Financial Planner, Chad Burton, drawing from his 20-year background in finance and investing to help you make sense of your money matters. New Focus on Wealth. Get a new focus on personal finance, wealth management, Wall Street, and the economy. Now your host for New Focus on Wealth, Chad Burton. Welcome into the show. I'm your host, Chad Burton, Certified Financial Planner. If you have a money question for the show, just shoot me an email, chad at chadburton.com. That's chad at chadburton.com. Well, we are starting to get into the thick of earnings season. It's July 8th now, so especially next week, be hot and heavy with earnings reports from companies out of the S&P 500. And it's going to be very interesting because right now, the forward 12-month PE ratio for the S&P 500, according to FactSet, is 15.8. That's below the five-year average of 18.6 and below the 10-year average of 16.9. Has it gone lower? For recessions, yeah, but yeah, it's a you know about seventy five percent of the way there um, already, and it, it's interesting is because now the bond market is is fully expecting the Fed to kind of push us into recession. We have currently an inverted yield curve when we look at the two year Treasury rate versus the ten year Treasury rate. That means the two year bond is paying more at two point nine seven percent as of yesterday, than the 10-year treasury rate, which is 2.93%. So usually you get paid more to hold on to bonds for a longer period of time. But not currently. So got an interesting situation here where we've got the Federal Reserve you know, bent on raising rates, and you're already seeing demand destruction, which will help offset some of the inflationary costs and can the Fed really control it? I mean, a, a lot of what's going on now or post the next three to six months is what's happening with Russia, with energy prices, with food costs. And as the China lockdowns, because of COVID, start to subside, that'll start to help the supply chain issue. So, you know, I truly feel my personal opinion is we're three to six months away still if not already, well, if not, if we already haven't seen peak inflation, we're three to six months away from seeing it. Um, a lot of the inflationary numbers were things, were goods that were sold at a huge amount, uh, more than normal during a supply chain disruption. And as I've talked about before, a lot of this, in my opinion, has to do with the PPP loans, a lot of businesses that took out these tax free loans ton of trillions of dollars pumped into the system. A good majority of businesses didn't end up needing the money um, unless they were something that was truly shut down and not able to work at home. 
like let's say a hair salon, let's say a restaurant um, that you know was only barely able to survive on takeout orders or anything that had to do with travel during that time. But every other business thought they were going to go into the dumps, right? 30, 40% declines in revenue was expected. So what happened to that PPP money? Well, if the business didn't end up using up to buy capital goods to expand their business or to buy other companies, then it was taken home and people bought, you know, remodeled homes, bought RVs, bought boats. Um, just the, the boating industry in general is just insane. Like people were selling boats 10 years old for more than they bought it for 10 years ago because everybody's trying to buy these things. And now things are slowing down and, and used cars, boats slowing down very quickly. Um, and that's basically demand destruction. A lot of demand destruction has to do with less money out there, but also just higher interest rates. And so, you know, like the housing market right now, it's like, you kind of look at it and say, okay, well, there's certain pockets that are still way overvalued. But at the same time, there's so many millennials that want homes, especially in the starter home area, but it's hard to get them completion dates because it's really hard to get things like windows, you know, indoors being six months out in some cases. So anyways, um, don't forget, we also saw this yield curve inversion in April and it's so silly because you can't point to a time where, oh, the yield curve inverted, two-year treasury rates are higher than the 10-year treasury rates, so a recession is an X number of months. It's not like that. It's kind of all over the board. And it's hard to argue any kind of a deep recession when the labor market is so strong. Now, we're expecting to see like today some softening numbers, but it's hard to fathom a, a real deep recession. And remember, there's different types of recessions. There's just basic secular recessions where, hey, things have gone a little bit too far, too fast. The economy's heated. We're seeing signs of inflation. Let's slow it down a bit, shake out the excess. You could see some of that excess when people were trading, getting investing into investing the first time and trading a very aggressive portfolio of meme stocks, of SPACs, that cryptocurrency that they didn't even understand. And that bubble is all but popped. Um, and so those are kind of the excesses that you see out there. And then just the overall job hopping situation where people, I think, should be very, very careful of that when they're just hopping jobs left and right right now just for that next higher paycheck. Because if we do go into an extended period of time where it's difficult for companies to you know, earn the same amount of profit, when you're new, you're the first to go. So keep that in mind if you're about to do that job hopping, that job switching. Um, so where are we today? I mean, the the bond market, oddly enough, had a, a little bit of a rally. Um, the 10-year treasury, I mean, just what, mid-June was up at 3.5%. And the bond market rallied quite a bit. Um, if you look at a couple of ETFs that represent actual investments into indexes that we talk about. Um, AGG, which is an ETF that tracks the Bloomberg Barclays Aggregate Bond Index. Um, Basically, kind of the... If if you have a a normal bond fund that invests in high-quality corporate, government bonds, and things like that, that's, that's the index that 
most bond funds try to compare themselves to. That's down 10.06% for the year. But as you started to get these fears, these, hey, we've got more ideas that a recession is coming, you had that rally in the bond market. And that's what I was talking about before. Last time we saw two years in a row of bond market declines was, I believe, 80 um, and 81. And then you had a rally in bonds in 82 once the Fed says they were raising rates, popped us into a recession. Now, I don't think we're like the late 70s, early 80s right now. We're not running it. 12% inflation with a horrible job market like we were then. That was stagflation. We are dealing with an inflationary environment that's caused by some interesting things, whether it be the PPP loans that created a bunch of money into the system. And then the, you know, Russia looking at the oil prices in 2020, leaving OPEC, pumping as much oil as they want, crashing the oil prices, putting a bunch of oil companies out of business, and then turn around and invading Ukraine, knowing that Europe is, you know, stuck buying oil from them. And that is really, really frustrating. Um, it's tough because it's like, hey, right now we should be pumping more oil to sell to them so that they can really cripple Russia in terms of finances so they stop doing what they're doing. But you know, between lack of refining the country for gas and then people being scared to restart those businesses for fear of another correction in oil prices after it's all said and done and having to go out of business again, it's just it's a, it's a tough situation. So just got to kind of get through it. SP 500, if we look at the total return, including dividends, is down about 17.5%. Uh, international developed down 19. Uh, Russell 2000, small and mid cap index, down 20.69% for the year. QQQ, which is a, more of a tech heavy index, is down 25% for the year. And emerging markets, oddly enough, is the winner here. And some of the indexes down only 17.22% for the year. Um, so slightly beating the S&P 500, and, but you know, it's been trading at recessionary levels because of all the issues going on overseas with the supply chain and COVID uh, and, and China just affecting the emerging market indexes. Emerging markets, international developed, still look very, very cheap and a lot of issues going on. Uh, EFA yields, what, over 4%, but I expect some dividends to probably be cut in that area. So a little bit more, um, I mentioned earlier uh, about if you check out FactSet Earnings Insight, which I like to get, I wish it was already updated today because we usually get that weekly update from them during earnings season. I love to watch it. Um, S&P 500 is trading at a forward 12-month price to earnings ratio of 15.8 as of July 1st. Um, and... That's below the five-year average of 18.6 and below the 10-year average of 16.9. Now, it's based on earnings estimates. And so, yeah, we're, we're, we're likely going to see that number go up if earnings estimates come down. And if that's the case, you know, do we have a little bit more to go? For, well, it just depends. I mean, P-E ratios... I've seen them, you know, during corrections, much lower than they are, like in a structural bear market, like we had in 2008, where the financial system was completely screwed up. Where we had people that really didn't even have a full-time real job filling out loan applications and getting eight rental houses, and then those loans were taken and packaged up and sold and leveraged multiple different ways that nobody really understood, and then the system just kind of collapsed. 
that's not what we're having here. We, you know, this is a too much money flowing into the system along with the supply chain disruption causing some inflationary issues. Um, we're not going to see another couple of decades of like 2% inflation like we've seen really. I mean, inflation has been very, very low compared to historical standards. And part of it is because of globalization making goods cheaper. And now we're going to see a situation of deglobalization. We have realignment of uh, global powers in terms of alliances. Um, and so we're likely to see some higher inflation, but I don't think it's going to be a runaway situation. I think it's going to be back more to the norm. Um, Fed shooting for 2%. They're really targeting on that. And let's just hope they don't overshoot because of things that they can't really control too much, which is, you know, Russia and supply chain uh, fixing itself due to COVID, all those kind of things. So it, there's going to be a lot riding guys on, on this, on what companies say in terms of guidance going forward and how that affects the forward PE ratio. So I'll try to keep you up to date on a weekly basis. Um, all right. A couple of other things to move on to some, some interesting news for retirees. And I don't, Look, I, I usually don't talk about various bills that are in the House or the Senate and how they affect, because there's, there's just so much stuff that gets proposed out there. And unless it looks like it's going to go through all of Congress and be signed, I don't tend to talk about it. But this one, um, which is essentially the unim- unanimous passage of the Enhancing American Retirement Now Act by the Senate, um, and the House bill dubbed Secure Point is Secure 2.0. Essentially, both bills um, aiming to raise the age of your required minimum distributions from 72 to 75. So, let's talk about how this, the changes have been made. So, the first Secure Act in 2020 changed it so that you used to have to start taking them, even if you don't want to. You used to have to start taking required minimum distributions from your IRAs, 401ks, 403bs, all those retirement accounts at age 70 and a half. And then it changed in 2020 to age 72. And this bill is likely to go through by the end of the year to raise it to age 75. So I put this out there. If you're 72 this year um, and making, and you know, you're going to take your first required minimum distribution. Um, you might want to hold off until towards the end of the year. It's probably not going to happen before midterm elections, but sometime after that. And it could push it out to age 75. The other part of this legislation is to potentially allow catch-up contributions, another 10000 a year between the ages of 60 and 63 um, to various retirement accounts. And then automatically adjust the annual contribution to things like 401ks and IRAs automatically with cost of living. So we don't have to wait every year to figure out what you know they're going to allow us to do. Um, also, you know, a lot of people are coming into the workforce with um, student loan debt. So the bill is talking about allowing employers to make matching contributions to the workplace retirement plans of employees based on the amount of student loan payments they're making. That's interesting. Um, and then also, currently, there's a pretty decent credit if you're a small company to start a 401k plan, and they're going to increase that tax credit to 75% of qualified startup costs. So you know, basically, 
tax credit of 75%. There's a difference between a deduction and a credit. A deduction um, is you only get a percentage of that back um, in taxes. But when you get a credit, that's like dollar, dollar, dollar for dollar. So if it costs you, you know, a thousand dollars to start up a 401k plan, which it doesn't, it's going to be, you know, more than that. Um, in this situation, you get $750 back directly as a tax credit. So that's pretty good. Um, so, you know, it's probably going to be tied to the omnibus spending bill by the end of the year. Um, just like the original Secure Act was in 2019, it came into play in 2020. Now, I, I want to keep in mind so a couple things that even if this does happen, if we extend the required minimum distribution age from 72 to 75, a couple of things. First of all, if you're gifting to charity, to your nonprofit organizations, and you're gifting typically, you know, a decent amount over 500 bucks. There's two ways to do that. You can either gift shares of highly appreciated stock out of your taxable account to avoid the gains. Um, Or, well, you can give them cash, you know, just normal check. But why do that? Because once you're 70 and a half, you're still able to give up to a hundred grand a year from your IRA to your favorite charities, 503Cs. Um, with with money that's never been taxed. So it's like you, you take the money out of your IRA, you can either fill out a qualified distribution uh, form, a QDC, um, with your brokerage firm that you have your IRA at, and they'll send the money to your favorite charity. Or you can write a check and just track it yourself. And what that means is it's like, okay, you, you're, you're taking money out of your IRA that somebody's going to pay taxes on at the highest level, right? It's either going to be you or your children. But if you take that money and you give it to charity, nobody pays taxes on it. So once you're 70 and a half, it's usually best to make your contributions to your favorite charities out of your IRA account. So keep that in mind. And then another thing to keep in mind is even if they extend the age to 75, it's usually not a good idea to wait that long to either spend the money from your retirement accounts or convert it to a Roth IRA. Say hello to a pass that gives you endless travel for $2,500 per month with no nightly rates, taxes, or fees. You might call it the suitcases always packed pass or the wait I get to choose from 100,000 trips pass, the will it be the beach, city, mountains, or all three pass. Or you could just call it what we call it, the Inspirado Pass. Endless travel for $2,500 per month with no nightly rates, taxes, or fees. Learn more at inspiradopass.com. You know what I use Twitter for is during skiing snowboarding season to find out which lifts are open. (laughs) And after that, I ignore it. Maybe it's because I got tired of all the bots. I don't know. Um, So a little bit more about this situation of retiring and dealing with your IRAs um, and delaying retirement. We're delaying spending from your retirement accounts. So the best way to retire is you have cash in the bank that, you know, that's already been taxed. You'll have hopefully some normal investments in a brokerage, some non-retirement investments in a brokerage account, either mutual funds, ETFs, individual stocks that when you sell them, you'll pay capital gains. And you'll have your pre-tax accounts and your 401ks, 403bs, IRAs. And then you have some tax-free accounts in your Roths, hopefully. That's tax diversification once you get to retirement. But most people 
that are retiring these days have really large 401k balances because that's the main savings vehicle for the last many years. And what they tend to do is like, gosh, I don't want to take that out until I have to because I'll have to pay taxes on that money. But then they don't do any kind of good long-term cash flow and tax projections realizing that once they hit 72 and have to take required minimum distributions that they lose control of their bracket. And so a lot of times I'm telling people prior to that age, either start spending the money if you need it, or at least start converting small amounts from your IRAs to your Roth IRA. You got to know how the tax brackets work because it can be very confusing. First of all, you got to know whether or not you're itemizing your deductions or taking the standard deduction. Because even if you're just taking the standard deduction, the standard deduction for a single person in 2022 is 12950 um, And if you're married finally jointly, it's 25900 but you get a little higher amount once you're over 65. So what I kind of say is that, okay, first at, at a minimum, whether you're itemizing or you're taking the standard deduction, if you're married finally jointly, the first 27 grand or so is tax-free because of the standard deduction. And then you've got two different brackets. You've got a capital gains bracket, and then you've got your ordinary income bracket. The capital gains bracket is if you have stock or real estate and you've held it for more than 12 months and you sell it, that's going to be at the federal capital gains bracket, which is there's a wide amount of money that's at 0%, then there's 15 and then 20. And, but your ordinary, and, and by the way, your, your qualified dividends from US-based corporations fall into that bracket as well. Um, so if you have you know Apple stock or Cisco or something like that, the dividends that those pay, those stocks pay, falls into that category. Now, your other ordinary income can affect your capital gains taxes and how much goes into that 0, 15, or 20% bracket. Your ordinary income is things like the taxable portion of your Social Security, your pension plans, your taxable portion of your rental properties, um, uh, obviously money that you earn if you're still working, and then also your IRA, 401k, 403b withdrawals. Um, but there's still a wide range. So once you have that, you got the standard deduction, right? And then you can make all the way up to 83,550 on top of that and still be at the 12% federal bracket on ordinary income. And potentially lower than that on your capital gains and dividend taxes. So it's really hard to explain, but there's these dueling brackets and everything affects one another. And so when you retire, what you have to deal with is a couple of different items. You have to deal with the idea that, okay, at 72, hopefully you know, we'll have a couple more years under this new Secure 2.0 Act. I have to start taking required minimum distributions from my IRAs, 403Bs, 401Ks, all of that. And my tax bracket's going to be drastically affected. So what is that going to be? Do a long-term projection so that you can see that. We do that with our financial planning software. And then we look at, okay, based on the amount of money that I have now, how much am I, am I leaving a lot of money to my heirs or not? Or do I just have enough to live? Do I just have enough to live? If you just have barely enough to live, then it's an idea of, okay, let's try to blend these brackets together because you don't want to 
uh, spend all of your cash and your taxable accounts and then get to age 72, all you have left over is your IRAs. You want to blend and fill in the brackets. So in other words, if you get towards the end of the year and you need a little bit more money out, you can max out that 12% bracket, right? Now, let's say you have a lot of money that you're going to leave to your heirs and you get towards the end of the year and your taxable income is $70,000. You might convert $13,000 from your IRA to your Roth and still, ma- and still not exceed that 12% federal bracket. You're filling in that bracket. The next bracket is 22%. And if you're married finally jointly, that's from $83,551 to $178,000. And that's, those are the areas typically we're doing IRA to Roth conversions. When you do it, there's a couple of things that you have to think about. First of all, if you're taking Social Security already, hopefully not. Hopefully you're doing this, you're putting it off till age 70 if you think you're going to live into your mid-80s and beyond. But you got to realize that there's a social security taxation. So for those that haven't saved a lot or just barely have to retire and they start doing IRA withdrawals or IRA to Roth conversions, sometimes it can negatively affect how their social security is taxed. And this is so I'm talking about for lower income earners here. And so once you, and it's your modified adjusted gross income, it's, it's your provisional. It's so stupid. It's half, it's your modified adjusted gross income plus half your social security. If that number exceeds uh, 25,000 if you're single or 32 if you're married, 50% of your benefits can be taxable. If it's over 34,000 single or 44,000 married, 85% of your benefits may be taxable. So those that have the lower income in that area should be aware of that taxable situation. Those that are in a higher income bracket need to be aware of IRMA. And IRMA is when you have to start paying more for your Medicare Part B. And that's when your modified adjusted gross income starts to hit over the 180000 range if you're married or you know, 90, 90-ish if you're single. And so what, what happens is, is when you get on Medicare at age 65, essentially what's being looked at is your age 63 tax return. And if that number is really high because you sold something uh, took a large IRA distribution and converted it to a Roth IRA, then then you can pay higher IRMA. Now, if you sold a rental property or or changed jobs and and had a large taxable event, you can fight it. There's a forum you can fill out online to get rid of the IRMA. But some people are just in it forever, and you just have to be aware of the different uh, rates at which your Medicare pre premiums can go up to from 170 a month to well over 500 a month. So you have to be aware of IRMA planning. It's, it's interesting because it's like when you're young and you're saving and you're, you're building wealth, it's so easy. 20s, 30s, 40s, sock as much as you can into your 401k, into your Roth IRA, and then start buying you know, large and mid-cap ETFs, and you know, whether it's even S&P 500 or just total stock market index. And as long as you're saving, saving, saving... You can't make too many mistakes in your 20s and 30s and 40s. Once you get to 50 and you know, you're, let's say, mid-50s, kids are out of the house, hopefully out of college. You finally have extra money to save and you're doing catch-up contributions and dealing with, do I, do I invest more? Do I pay off my mortgage? How do I start becoming more conservative and create a balanced portfolio? And then the real key, when you really need financial planning help and need that, that support of not screwing up is the 10 years from retirement and beyond. 
where you really have to start transitioning from wealth accumulation to slowly transition your portfolio to a distribution phase and a ton of tax planning. A ton of tax planning. Morningstar does reports and they typically say about the average investor loses about 15% of their return every year to taxes. And things going wrong when it comes to taxes. Let me give you a very specific example of this. You've, you've heard me say that when people are younger, I don't mind in their 401ks if they use the target date funds to invest in their 401k. If they're just starting out, they've you know, got less than 100 grand, I'm totally fine with it. But I do not like target retirement date funds for older investors with a lot of money. I don't. I just don't like the bond choices. I don't like the extra fees for not having personal management. And I definitely don't like the tax situation. And there's a specific example why. Vanguard is set to pay $6 million to investors hit with big tax bills. So there was a bunch of investors out there and they decided to use non-retirement money to invest in target date retirement funds. And these are funds that automatically become more conservative as you age. Now, with the invention of ETFs, exchange-traded funds, they're more tax-efficient than mutual funds. Number one, you need to concentrate on those with your after-tax dollars. Like for example, what is an ETF? If you look at IVV, SPY, VOO, those are all ways that you can invest in the S&P 500 with an ETF. Right, You can go online, open up a brokerage account, buy it, set it to reinvest its dividends and set up even monthly purchases on it if you want to. Good way to build after-tax dollars, you know, non-retirement account dollars in large cap stocks. If you want VTI, that's total stock market index, for example. So a lot of different ways. I'll explain what happened in these target retirement date funds and how inherited capital gains can kind of really create a bill that you were not expecting. All right. So I was talking a little bit about this Vanguard having to pay $6 million to investors hit with big tax bills. So you had investors in um, these target date retirement funds, which again, I, I think they're great for younger investors, you know, sub age you know, 50 that don't want to figure out how to pick funds on their own. You can just invest in these target date funds. It gets diversified among all asset classes or most asset classes. Um, and as you age, they automatically become more conservative. But I've never really liked the bond choices and how the bonds work in these things for retirees. It's just not smart enough. It's not custom enough. Don't like them for retirees at all. Um, and this is this is a, a situation here where essentially what Vanguard did is they created an incentive for institutional investors to move out of existing target retirement date funds to a new set of the same funds with lower costs. They lowered the minimum on the newer set of funds. So a whole bunch of money left these mutual funds. And what that caused is it caused the manager of the existing funds to sell a bunch of stocks and bonds inside the fund and that generated distributions of capital gains to their investors. What this means is that you have an investor um, that had a bunch of money in this target retirement date fund. 
They didn't sell anything. They didn't pull any money out to live. And all of a sudden they get the surprise tax bill. One investor told the Wall Street Journal that he incurred a $150,000 surprise tax bill in 2021 on his holdings in the Vanguard Target Retirement Date 2035 fund. It's called a phantom tax. What happens is, is that when you buy into a mutual fund, and you can see this under the, 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 the price information at Morningstar, you can see the, the potential capital gains tax exposure, that if they've owned stock in a fund and you're buying it in your taxable non-retirement account, you buy into a fund today and they've owned Apple for you know, 12 years, 15 years, and then, and then this year they decide to sell Apple, even though you just bought into the fund and you're down for the year because the stock market's down, you could end up paying a capital gains tax. Now, it increases your cost basis. So when you actually sell in the future, you'll pay less taxes. But that's money that goes out of your pocket to the IRS. And it's an issue. That's why oftentimes Morningstar, the average investor, loses 15% of their return to taxes. You have to have asset allocation. That's the pie chart, right? How much do you have in large cap, small cap, mid cap, international, uh, emerging markets, commodities, you know, uh, real estate, all that kind of stuff. And you have to have the proper asset location. Where do, what, do you, what kind of assets you buy and where? If you're investing after-tax dollars in a non-retirement account, you should be focusing on large-cap and mid-cap, maybe ETFs, and in some cases, tax-free bonds. And then all the other asset classes go into the other types of retirement accounts because small-cap funds have a lot of turnover and a lot of tax bills, things like that. Now, you should also be focusing in your taxable accounts, ETFs, exchange-traded funds. Mutual funds trade once a day. If you buy or sell in the morning, you're not going to get the price or the close until the end of the day when they figure out the value of everything. And the way that mutual funds are created versus ETFs, ETFs trade all day long like a stock and shares can be created and dissolved on the fly. And so... The, you can have the same exact investment like the S&P 500 um, in the form of a mutual fund or an ETF. And the ETF is going to be able to be more tax efficient in avoiding distributing capital gains to the shareholders. So you have to get... I mean, first of all, you need to learn the term ETF or exchange-traded fund because mutual funds are probably going to go the way of the dodo bird. A lot of companies... For example, like DFA, dimensional funds, they're really kind of somewhat of the inventor, I guess, because smart beta where you take your indexes and you put rules around it to screen out stocks. So you're still kind of index investing, but you're, you're, you're screening out hopefully the you know, non-profitable, too expensive stocks, for example. Um, they're converting a, a lot of their mutual funds into ETFs, exchange-traded funds because of the tax efficiencies around that. You know, it's interesting, theoretically, if you own a bunch of S&P 500 in an ETF, like SPY, IVV, VOO, you own a bunch of it, you could theoretically go to the, the provider and say, okay, I, I don't want this ETF anymore. I want the correct amount in individual stocks. Distribute the actual stocks to me instead, and then you could turn around and you know, sell the ones that you didn't want anymore. So the ones that might have a loss or something like that. So it, 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 I've never seen it happen, but theoretically it can happen. This also brings me real quick that we're almost at the end of the show. Um, I had a question from, let's see, Marvin in Dublin a while back that I hadn't gotten to yet. 
I had a question about continuing to fund my youngest child's 529 plan after she starts college in a few months. We don't have enough in the 529 to fund the entire four years of tuition. Um, should we still fund it after she begins school or keep it in a savings account? Well, first of all, keep it in a savings account, right? Actually, there's not a lot of reason because these 529 plans, if they're age-based funds, they're kind of like these target retirement funds. As the kid gets closer and closer to college, they're supposed to become more conservative and put more in cash. And so there's no reason to put the money in the 529 plan, really, if you're just going to be spending the cash and it's just going to be sitting in cash in the 529 plan. And what I've noticed recently in the last couple of quarters reviewing some clients and their 529 plans, a lot of the 529 plans switched so that as the kid got closer to college and usually they had more money in the safe, you know, kind of money market accounts, a lot of them got heavier into bonds and bonds are down for the year. So you know, people might need as they start withdrawing from those 529 plans for college, if you don't have enough, you know, you might want to spend cash in the early years and let, you know, fix the investments in the 529 plans. I'm out of time to talk a little bit about it more, but you might want to keep an eye and check out the allocation on those 529 plans because a lot of the providers out there made some changes to go heavier into bonds as the kid age versus cash. And that worked, you know, in a bad way with the bond market down this year. Welcome in, Rob Black and your money. I'm Rob Black talking all things financial. It's a special day. I get CFP Chad Burton on to answer a couple of emails to post you in the right direction of where his podcast can be found. He does a show here live on KDOW. It's easiest found on Google Play Store or Apple iTunes under New Focus on Wealth with CFP Chad Burton. He is a regional director, longtime friend, a longtime business partner, and much, much more. Chad, where does the world find you today? Where does the world find me? Chadburton.com. It's always, you can always find me there. More specifically, geographically, where in the world is Chad Burton? <laughs> gotcha. Well, uh, main office is Vancouver, Washington. So 20 minutes from Portland, Oregon. But most of my clients are in the Bay Area that I work with out of the... used to be in San Mateo. We moved that office to Redwood Shores. But we also now have offices in the East Bay, um, Berkeley area, Marin, Chicago. Uh, Utah, Denver, so all part of EP Wealth. So we got a, a, over 80 certified financial planners, a team of analysts, and team of tax people, team of attorneys. So we've got it all. Yes, I like the expanding portfolio of product um, because people are getting into more complicated situations. And for the first time in a long time, people are dealing with market correction. I got an email that I want your help on, Rob. I've been following you for tr- probably 20 years. If he's been following me, he's been following you. He's valued and benefited from our advice. He thanks us for that. As of this month, he's now retired and he's recently moved my 60-40-401k and buy and hold portfolio to Vancouver and Fidelity. But as I'm just a little over a million, I've recently taken most of the money out of the market to preserve what I have. Let's stop there. Oof, yeah. um, this guy could use a financial planner first and foremost. Not always great to be getting your financial planning tuned up via radio or podcast, but we're honored that he's been a 20-year fan. So let's give him some thoughts here. Um, One million or let's do the 60-40 portfolio first because that's in the news. Is it is it dead? What is it? Uh, well, it definitely needs to be tweaked. I mean, okay. I can talk about that and how we're doing that for larger portfolios. 
But it's not just the 60-40 portfolio. If he's been listening since, you know, we've been talking about this since 1999, what do I always say? You know, right? You, you've, got, you've got to have three years worth of portfolio draws in cash. You, you just have to. Um, we've done all sorts of different you know, views of the stock market. You can do Monte Carlo simulations. You can do everything. But if you don't have that cash reserve... When you run into situations like we saw in, for example, 80, 81, and now where stocks and bonds go down at the same time, you, if you don't have cash, you, you don't have anything to draw on without locking in losses. That's why I've, I've constantly preached this because these, these, ser- these situations happen. And I figured this out, you know, 19 years old. <laughs> I was majoring in engineering and math and starting to get into this business as I just looked at the stock market history. I'm like, all right, well, we had three years in a row of declines right after the Great Recession when they, oh, the economy's doing well. Federal Reserve said, okay, we better raise rates again. And they kind of threw us into a recession. Um, then we had some bad years like 73, 74, where it took several years you know, to recover. Like next two years was up 60%, but still took a little while to recover. Um, and then I, so I just like, all right, I've, I've looked at this and I'm like, okay, I'm, there's been three years in a row that's negative. So I, I know that once I retire, I want to make sure that what my, my port, not my expenses, but my actual portfolio withdrawals. So if you need hundred grand a year and you're getting 50 from social security, you're going to take 50 grand a year from your portfolio. You need $150,000 in safe money in, okay. in FDIC well insured, no never risk. never really said it quite like that, just so you know. And, um, so it's, it's not expenses, it's, it's draws, right? right. And, and some of the things that can affect that are, you know, pension income, rental income, certain amount of dividends and interest. So we, we get pretty into the weeds in the calculation of that. Mm-hmm. But you have to have a, a situation where you can, if you, the market is declining, both stocks and bonds at the same time, it will absolutely recover. You just have to make sure you're not selling shares at a loss and locking in those losses and having fewer shares for the recovery. So it's okay to continue to take your dividends and interest on that 60-40 portfolio and you're living off that, your social security and your cash. And as long as you have that three years, you can usually make that cash last about five to seven years depending on your situation so that the market can recover. Um, I think it was like, you know, if you would have invested at the top of 2007 in a 60-40 portfolio, sometime late 2010, your portfolio recovered, right? Okay. That, was a, that was a deep one. That was the toughest one we went through. And now we're facing the toughest returns for a balanced portfolio that we've seen since 08 because the bonds are down at the same time. Stocks aren't down as much as they were in 08, um, but bonds are. So it's, it's, you know, man, I was looking at the Vanguard balanced fund, 60-40 fund the other day. It was like down 18% or so, which is pretty rough. So um, first of all, abandoning it now is a little bit silly because I think we're, you know, the majority of the way down um, facing a recession, working through there's a process. Certain, yeah, the, and the certain there's certain areas. Whether you look at price to book of the Russell or just small cap value PE ratios in general, that look very attractive already. And so, this person, if they went to all cash, should be picking a four to six month period where they average back into the proper portfolio. And maybe that's not sixty forty anymore, Rob. Maybe it's you make sure you have your three years worth of portfolio draws in cash, like Marcus Capital One three sixty. And the rest of your portfolio is maybe, you know, 60, 30, 10, where the 10 is in alternatives, um, whether that be commodities or uh, private lending or direct, direct lending type products um, that 
that you got to, because I mean, the bond market's not going to pay us a lot for the next few years. So another part of his question, it comes from John and he has been a long time listener. I've just Googled his emails. Um, he talks about his buy and hold dead, or I want to ask is buy and hold dead because he has a buy and hold portfolio. Has this recent correction made you feel maybe we need to question terms like buy and hold, or are you still set in stone that buy and hold's okay? Um, it, it's, if you, if you're just buying and holding just the S and P 500, which has come tech heavy and you're essentially investing in like 50 companies in reality, okay, yeah. the Apple, Microsoft, Cisco, um, you know, Facebook, Google's, um, this, you know, some of those areas of the S and P 500, because it's much different than it was even 10 years ago in terms of structure and the companies involved in it. Um, then, then yeah, you're just buying and holding large cap growth and that, Silly. I mean, to this this year, value has drastically outperformed growth. So you need to have when you build a portfolio, it it you've got to have your structure correct. You got to have large cap, small cap, mid cap, international emerging markets, and with each of those categories, you have to have exposure to value and growth. Uh, value is going to go down less in a in a bad market, and it's going to pay higher dividends. In a growth market, your growth stocks or your growth ETFs, however you're investing, is you're going through a good phase in the market. Seven out of 10 years are positive. Those are the periods where you trim that area and replenish the cash that you're spending. So it's not buy and hold in retirement. It's where do I trim during the growth years to replenish the cash that I'm spending? I want to ask one quick one in his email from John. He says, I do not want to go under a million. Um, again, a financial plan I think is heavily wanted for him or needed for him. But what do you think about that psychological behavioral thing? Under a million, over a million, under a million, over a million. Oh, I get it. I mean, it's like, you know, you're, hey, I've, I've, I've got, a, I'm, I'm a millionaire just based on my retirement savings. Mm-hmm. And that's something that probably as a kid, you never thought you'd say. Fair enough. But just from diligent savings, he made it. It is always interesting the way the batch of email questions comes in with very similar themes when markets kind of change directions. We've gone from a stock market that was fueled by very low interest rates to a stock market that's dealing with higher interest rates. That's just one of the themes that's changing. Speaking with CFP, Chad Burton, he is a regional director and certified financial planner. He is with EP Wealth. You can find him at chadburton.com or through the podcast world at Google Play Store. Apple iTunes app or at the kdow.biz website as well as chadburton.com. One of the themes that I'm seeing right now, Chad, are people who are retired, i.e. 60, 65 and older, um, trying to figure out what's next. Um, do I sit out the market? Do I come back into the market? But one of the better ones that I've seen recently is a 55-year-old man. He's single. He owns his own home. With $350,000 in equity in California, he owes $40,000 on a vehicle, $7,000 credit card debt, $70,000 available credit. He's really detailed. I like that. He has a good concept of what he has and doesn't have. He makes $120K a year with a 5% increase annually. He's in the union. He has $500,000 sitting in a bank free and clear that isn't making any money. Uh Uh-oh, Chad's not going to like that. But he's also met with two financial advisors who have tried to get him to invest in life insurance policies, which didn't make him feel warm and fuzzy. Any suggestions on where he's at, Chad, and how he can make that 500000 work for him other than calling CFP Chad Burton or finding Chad Burton at chadburton.com? 
Well, okay. So let's address the life insurance thing, okay. first of all. Because if you go to somebody for financial advice and they try to sell you life insurance or annuities or something like that, they're not you know, fiduciaries. A fiduciary is supposed to act in your best interest and you're going to pay for that advice. And often what a fiduciary certified financial planner does is like, okay, here's three options. Let's say they could work for you and your family. Which one? This is the one that I might do, and, and but which one feels better for you because you're a couple and, and everybody's different. You know, which 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 option feels the best? And you know, the group of my higher net worth clients, I mean, there's like maybe five that life insurance and an investment has has worked for. Okay. And it's for those people that I'm done buying real estate rental properties. I've, I've got plenty of stocks. I don't want any more bonds. And I want kind of a, a, a spot between stocks and bonds in terms of an asset class. And, and there's some really low load uh, index universal life that get, could make sense. And it's very few and far between, Rob. I mean, it's usually maybe the top 1% of the population in terms of earnings power. Uh, unfortunately, I'm seeing a lot of this like on social media where it's swung from pumping cryptocurrency to pumping this life insurance as an investment because of you know the market's down and and index certain index products offer you potential over upside of the S&P 500 price movement without any downside risk but there's a lot of fees and and things like that involved in those products that uh, you know, you've got to do a lot of reading to understand and so it is very important that you, if you go to get a financial plan for somebody, the first thing they do is try to sell you life insurance. You, you, you run. <laughs> you just, it, it's not the proper relationship. I noticed um, a couple more things in his email while you were talking there. He said he's met with two financial advisors, which is not a certified financial planner. Can you tell me the difference between a financial advisor and a financial planner? Yeah. I mean, you can get a serious, what is it, 65 license and which, you know, almost any, decently smart person could study for for 30 days and get that license. And it's really about, it doesn't even help financial planning in my opinion. It's like kind of old laws <laughs> that, that you have to learn about in for the business. And then all of a sudden, hey, are you a financial advisor? But unless the person is a certified financial planner where they've gone through the coursework and taxes, insurance, retirement planning, estate planning, investing, they have to have a bachelor's degree, submit a financial plan, take a an exam that's got a 55% national pass rate. So it's very difficult. Um, and then have three years experience, typically. Uh, they're certified financial planner, but even some CFPs deal with commission. So you have to have a certified financial planner that will state in writing that they're a fiduciary, fee-only, no conflicts of interest. And that's when you're going to get true financial advice. Another thing I noticed in his email, $7,000 credit card debt for a 55-year-old man um, with $500,000 sitting in a bank free and clear. That seems to be something you would jump on. Well, yeah. I mean, get rid of the credit card debt. That doesn't make any sense. Um, and then, I mean, you've got, think, you know, you've got like Ally, ALY, you got Capital One 360, you got Marcus. Um, even what I think was it lending tree or you know whatever that loan company has turned into an FDIC insured bank. Mm-hmm. You can go to uh, like bankrate.com or NerdWallet, and they typically have a list of the highest yielding FDIC insured online savings account that you just tie to your existing checking account. You can get a lot higher interest rate on it. And then 
you know, the next step is to say, okay, here's how much I need in, in cash, which is in retirement or five years from retirement, three years worth of what your projected portfolio draws are going to be. And the rest you average into a portfolio and pick a period of time of, of four to six months. And if the market has a further correction, accelerate it. But if not, don't, de- don't, don't get scared and slow that dollar cost averaging in. Just continue to move forward and get reinvested into a proper portfolio. And then not just a 60-40 portfolio. The old 60-40 portfolio of 60% S&P 500, 40% bonds, that, that is debt. That's not going to get you to retirement. You've got to be a little bit more specific um, than that and have some alternatives in there. Things like uh, you know, re- real estate, things like um, direct lending or private debt, uh, commodities, something like that. We'll have to um, talk about direct lending another day because people are asking me for cash and I just get nervous on that one. And they're legitimate businesses, but I get nervous. Um, another well, thing I huge. saw, yeah, that's I, a big, that's a big area now. Let's focus back on that in a week or two because I think that would be a great show because it's something I know nothing on. But another thing I saw in his email, his name's Robert, by the way, he's 55. He owns a home. He's got a vehicle, credit card debt. But what is interesting to me, um, he's got $350,000 in equity. $500,000 sitting in a bank. Ultimately, he's not invested in stocks. He says, I'm unfamiliar with stocks and I've met two financial advisors. Do you know what a tragedy his life has been financially speaking because he's 55 and he's never owned stocks, it sounds like? And he's got 500000 He could have done very, very well for himself. Well, what's interesting is I you know, know somebody that's you know, in the process of in halfway through selling their company for well over $60 million and they've created two uh, companies, but are still unfamiliar with stocks. And, and so kind of the way you explain it, well, you know, you're buying a piece of a company and hmm. a business owner, you know, they can look at a PL, a profit and loss and kind of help value their company and figure out what they can get for it. I'm like, we're doing the same thing with stocks. You're looking at, you're looking at the profitability of a company and valuing it and, and being able to say, okay, this is what, you think it's going to be worth in the next three to five years? It is a tragedy. I mean, that that that, that money needs to get put to work for him because we are going to be in a period of higher inflation, and we're not going to keep running at eight and a half percent plus. But with deglobalization, you need to be invested in stocks and other assets in order to beat inflation and maintain your purchasing power. Thanks for listening. Please tell a friend about the show. Remember, you can find me and get some financial planning help, retirement planning help at chadburton.com. That's chadburton.com. Have a great day. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.